For some people, the selection of Paul's letter that we're going to look at today is deeply painful. With these verses that we will examine, some have been taught that men and women are not equal in the eyes of God, that women are inferior, that women are deficient. Now, you know that the Bible champions the opposite truth, which was read this morning. Thank you so much, Emma, for that scripture reading this morning, where it says, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, male or female, and you might add on any number of others, young and old, all are equally welcome, equally valued as children of God. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) So this, from this book of special um, instruction that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, um, we have some important instruction. And it reminds me a little bit of of, uh, a book of letters that children wrote. And um, the, these children wrote little sayings to God. And it, one little boy said, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you aren't one, but please try to be fair. <laughs> God is always fair. It's hard for us, but not for God. And it would be well for us as we consider the verses, that the status around the world of women is challenged. Last week, we had as a guest speaker uh, the leader, the president of ADRA, Jonathan Duffy. And if you had the time to join us for the Sabbath evening Vespers, Vespers program, Elder Duffy highlighted in words and in film, the plight of women in our world today. Asia alone has an imbalance of 163 million males over females. Now, why is that? Some people call it unnatural selection. In other words, once a fetus has been identified it is much more likely to be unwanted and aborted or abandoned and exposed if it's a female. According to the World Health Organization, one in three women around the world will experience physical or sexual abuse. One in three. According to UNESCO, one in four girls in developing countries will not be able to to complete a primary school education. So I think it's important this Sabbath that we talk about these things from the book of Corinthians. Paul's letter, of course, to the church in Corinth was addressed to a place and a time with certain social issues that are unique from our era, our time today. You just take a moment to visit 
a different culture. And you'll immediately notice, sometimes subtle, but sometimes not so subtle, assumptions and pressures and constraints about the way people act and behave and dress and talk. For example, in Western culture, a man wouldn't consider going to a dinner party wearing a bathing suit. That would be ridiculous. A woman wouldn't think of going to a beach picnic wearing a formal gown, right? Why? Why is that? Well, that's just our social norms. The pastoral staff here at Village Church have the privilege of mentoring Walla Walla University theology students every year. And it's not uncommon to have them attend one of our church board meetings. And on a number of occasions at such meetings, one of these young men will be wearing a ball cap. And they don't even think of it. It's just a part of their dress. It's as much a part of their dress as their shoes. And they wear their ball caps at board meetings. And I really don't think much of it either until we finish with the board and someone comes up to me and says to me, that was so disrespectful for that young person to be wearing that ball cap during our board meeting. Maybe you come from a background that's unchurched. Maybe that's been your experience and then you come to the Bible and begin to read it and there are some really bizarre things there. There's polygamy. There's a whole lot of Max extermination. There are statements that make you wonder what's going on. Statements about husbands ruling over wives. And you wonder, how could a modern, thoughtful person honor such a book? Some of you may have come from that kind of background. Or likely most of you have come from the background where you're taught that, well, maybe, maybe you've been taught that Men are supposed to rule over women. And women are to be consigned to a restricted or subservient role. That may have been your background. So, whatever the case, it's important for us at the outset of our study as we get into these verses from 1 Corinthians to lay us a firm foundation stone in this regard. And so, I'd like to read from what's called the fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We believe as a church, as a Seventh-day Adventist Church, in the equality of all humanity, irrespective of gender, race, ethnicity, age, education, and status. Is that right? That's right. And here's what our fundamental statement says. The church is one body with many members called from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In Christ, we are a new creation. Distinctions of race, culture, learning, and nationality, and difference between high and low, rich and poor, male and female, must not be divisive among us. We are all equal in Christ, who by one spirit has bonded us into one fellowship with him and with one another. We are to serve and be served without partiality or reservation. Through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, we share the same faith and hope 
and reach out in one witness to all. This unity has, it has its source in the oneness of the triune God who has adopted us as his children. That's the 14th fundamental belief of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I have to say to that, amen. I believe that. I'm glad for that. But we're jumping into this, this, this text as a part of our year-long now series beginning the first in January of 2019, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And we've reached a section of this book that's a bit challenging. It deals with some issues and problems that were going on in Corinth that are really kind of hard to understand. The crisis of this section, and you could put it into a section, chapter 11 through chapter 14. We're just looking at the first few verses of chapter 11. This section... 1 Corinthians 11 to 14 has to do with worship, public worship in the church. In particular, the first few verses of chapter 11 that we'll look at today talk about the place of men and women in worship, as worshipers. And of all the issues that Paul addresses in this letter to the church in Corinth, one of the most extensive dealings and one of the most difficult to understand is this one right here. Paul opens this section about worship with some strong, with a strong word of praise. Notice what he says. Verse number 2, chapter 11. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. That's how star- Paul starts this section. Notice he says he praises them for remembering traditions that he passed on. That is something very significant. Paul was passing on to the churches that he formed and established traditions that were part of the Christian tradition. Now, the church was very young. The church started with Jesus Christ and his crucifixion uh, at AD 30. And when Paul wrote this letter, it was about AD 55. So there had been about 25 years where this period of the Christian community was organizing, was teaching, and traditions were beginning to be built, and traditions that were judged as worthy to pass on and be, become part of all churches in worship. And Paul was a part of this move, movement. He didn't create the movement, but he was a part of the movement. He joined the movement, and he praises the Corinthian believers for remem- remembering and maintaining the traditions that he had passed on to them. When he was there, he spent a year and a half in Corinth. One of the traditions that Paul evidently passed on to the Corinthian church was that everyone, Jew or Greek, slave or free, man or woman, are equal, equally valued, equally honored, equally respected in the body of Christ. That's one of the things he passed on. It could be said that this truth or better said, this, uh, it was an unfortunate misapplication of this truth, actually created a situation that Paul finds in the church in Corinth at this time. It may have been, uh, we're just supposing because we're looking back in history 2,000 years, but it may have been that some in the church, some of the Corinthian women in the church, took Paul's teaching, this teaching of freedom in Christ, to mean that they could do 
something different with their hairstyle, something different with their dress. Instead of wearing what everyone was wearing, they could remove the normal head covering. Maybe they felt that they could unbraid their hair and that they could pray or prophesy in the worship service and not show attention to the normal social convictions that were a part of their culture. Paul's day was similar to our day in many ways. Just like today, in Paul's culture, and Paul's time, gender was marked by dress and by hairstyle. It's still the same today. There, perhaps, and there are a lot of perhapses in our study today because we don't know everything for certain. We're sort of feeling our way through these verses. But Paul, in these verses, does not congratulate women, these women who were doing this in the worship service, as that being a good expression of their freedom in Jesus Christ. Instead, he insists that they maintain the current cultural traditions of gender during the worship service. Maybe another complicating issue, again, we don't know for sure, but perhaps, this is another perhaps, that the worshipers in Corinth uh, were, were appearing in public in the same way, the women were appearing in public the same way that temple prostitutes appeared in public. Now, imagine, just for a moment, imagine the impact on evangelism in Corinth if people in town learned that the Christians were having meetings where the women were letting their hair down. Now you might say, well, so what? What difference does that make? Well, it would be somewhat similar to Village Church the, the, having the reputation in College Place and Walla Walla that women came to College Place Village Church wearing bikinis. That would be a good evangelistic tool. Uh, we'd have a gathering here of people that would come to, well, um, I didn't put that one on the screen as a picture. You can maybe know why. Um, but Paul's reference to a tradition gives some pointed instruction for us regarding men and women in worship. So let's just look at these verses and try to understand them. We'll read them in their entirety. You can open up your Bible, if you wish, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll read verses 3 to 16. This is what it says. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who, woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Everything clear so far? We'll go on. Verse 7. 
A man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For a man did not come from woman, but a woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but a woman for man. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, I'm sure it's getting more clear to you now, isn't it? Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also a man is born of a woman. But everything comes from God. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her hair, head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, I'm sure that's all very clear to you, so we could probably just wrap up right now. This is challenge, these are challenging words. And within the larger story, it's really a question of the role of men and women in the Christian church. And there are certain verses in this scripture that we read that have become ground zero from, for some interesting spiritual anomalies. You maybe heard these. The head of a woman is man. Some people harp on that. Another one. Every woman who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Another one. Man was not created for woman, but woman for man. These Blunt words of Paul have been summarized in battle cries. You've maybe heard some of these battle cries. They are these. Women are to, to live under male authority. Another one. Women are to keep their heads covered in public. Another one. Women are to understand that they were created to serve man. Is this really what Paul is talking about? Is this his point in these verses this is, in many ways, a mysterious passage, I have to say. And it's one of the hardest in Paul's writings to unravel. As one commentator said it, it does not reveal all its secrets to everyone. So don't think that you're going to leave this place understanding all of this. No interpreter and no interpretation can satisfy every reader, every person. But much of it can be understood, and some of the errors can be corrected. And for that, we will give our time this morning here. From a distance, if we just took the 50,000-foot view, raising up from this verse, it's clear that Paul is talking about worship, and worship in Corinth was problematic. <laughs> it was problematic. The Corinthian church had all sorts of things going on. And you'll notice that they had both male and female prophets. They had both male and female leading in worship. They had both male and female doing public prayer. And Paul tells the men who pray and prophesy, he tells them, do it with your heads uncovered. And to women, he says, pray and prophesy, but have your heads covered. So they're do both doing the same thing, but one in different circumstances. The men and women were doing the same things. This is not one against the other. They're both praying. They're both prophesying in public for the gathered church. So 
I think it's important that we just make a, a, a general observation. This is not gender subordination. It's gender distinction. Does that make sense? Not gender subordination. It's gender distinction. And here's what seems to be happening, happening in Corinth. Here's what seems to be happening, in my eyes anyway. Female prophets and prayers, these women who were leading out in worship, public worship service in Corinth, must have taken Paul's words, all things are lawful for me, and we've talked about that in our previous talks together in 1 Corinthians 6.12 and 1 Corinthians 10.13. They must have taken Paul's words, all things are lawful for me, as meaning that when I come into worship and to prophesy and to pray, I don't have to have my head covered as is normal in culture, in our culture here in Corinth. But this right that they had created problems. And you can see the, the problems. Some members of the congregation, as they gathered to worship, were of a Jewish background. Others came to faith in Christ, and they had been a Greek or Roman citizen. And the difference between those and what these women were doing created some, some challenge. Christians that had a Jewish background were steeped in a tradition that told them that any self-respecting, any decent woman, when she goes out in public, will have her head covered. That's what Judaism said. A woman's hair was to be seen only by her family and by her husband and in private. This is still followed today by the Amish people. And also within the Islamic faith, the public head covering of a woman is a signal. It says, I'm a respectable woman with a family that cares. That's what it says. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, if you were not of Jewish background, but rather Greek or Roman, um, the situation was somewhat similar. Women in general, when they went out in public, covered their head. Those who didn't cover their head were typically uh, sacred prostitutes. They were part of the temple worship service, the burgeoning sex business that was associated with pagan worship. They were the ones who went out with their hair down and their head uncovered. That's what was happening. So with this cultural mix, it's easy to see why Paul felt the need to discuss the issue. Is creating challenges. He is not putting down women. He has a record in that regard. I mean, he, he has a, a former experience. If you look at the book of Acts, you'll notice that Paul reached out to Greek women and was quite effective in, in bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. Over and over again, the book of Acts records how women of high standing were attracted to the message of love and grace that Paul preached. For example, in Philippi, Lydia, she's described as a dealer in purple cloth. She opened her heart to Paul's message. You see that in Acts chapter 16 of verse 14. She and her house were, household were baptized and it, Paul planted a house church in her house. Lydia. 
And then the, the church in Crenshaw, which was a port city for Corinth, was led, the church there was led by a lady by the name of Phoebe. And she's called a servant, which is the same word as deacon in Romans chapter 16, verse number 1. And it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Crenshaw. Then it goes on to say that she is a benefactor or leader in the, in the second verse. Verse number 2 says, she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So, so here's another person, Phoebe, a lady who was a leader in the church. Again, both Priscilla and Aquila, they were also gifted leaders in the church in Corinth. Their home was likely the church that Paul planted. That's where the church met. House churches were where the Christian church began. It was likely that believers gathered in the home of Priscilla and Aquila for a year and a half while Paul was there with them. And it may be, uh, we don't know for sure, but it may be that Priscilla was one of the ladies who was prophesying. Or she could have been one of the ladies who was offering public prayer. So Paul here affirms the rightness of having both men and women lead in public worship. That's what he's saying. The men are to lead in public worship with their head uncovered. The women were to lead in public worship with their head covered. Now, the challenge is when Paul gets into explaining why. It's difficult and it's interesting. But here's how he starts. Look at verse number three. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What is Paul saying? Well, it's interesting because Paul uses the same word, kephla, in the Greek to, to refer to head. And head can be understood in various different ways. It can be your cranium, your skull, that's the head. It could also be the, the head as in authority over someone, like Mrs. Jones is the CEO of a company, or head could also be like the source of. You could say that the, the headwaters of the Walla Walla River is the Blue Mountains, that sort of head. So three meanings could be had. Now, what Christians oftentimes do today, or at least through history, is that we've gone for the second option, option number two, authority over. So when we read that word head in this text, we think, okay, the man has authority over the woman. But the Bible doesn't say that. That's an interpretation of those words. And they could just as easily be understood as being not over, authority over, but source of. The third meaning could be is just as legitimate. So what would that mean? Well, here's how it would read. The origin of every man is Christ. In other words, meaning that Christ is the agent of creation. He was the one through whom the world was created. Okay, the origin of every man is Christ. Then the second thing, the origin of woman is man. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that woman came from man. That's what happened. She came from man in the beginning, she was taken from man's side. He was the source of the woman, not the authority over the woman, but the source of the woman, which is true according to the biblical text. And then the last one, the origin of Christ is God. What does this mean? That means that Christ as the Messiah, he is 
God among us. The Messiah is God. Just like the origin of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, so too the origin of Christ is God. Christ is God. That's what he's saying. He is the source of divine. He is divine. So the underlying point, therefore, seems to be that in worship, it's important for men and women to be the people that God made them to be. Does that make sense? To be the people that God made them to be. To honor God by being who they are. Not by blurring the lines of gender like the women in Corinth were doing by dressing that way. One of the truths that Paul is affirming here is that in worship, God's created order is being restored in worship. And if not restored, it is at least being um, anticipated. You notice in these words that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that he oftentimes looks back to the Genesis account of creation. For example, um, 1 Corinthians verse 11, 7 to 9 says, a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For a man did not come from a woman, but but woman from man. Neither was man created for a woman, but a woman for man. That, that all harkens back to the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says that God made man and woman in his image. Right? Both, both genders were made in the image of God. It was not one or the other. Paul says here, that man was made in the image of God and that woman was the glory of man. Well, that could also be understood instead of thinking of her as being under or having authority over her by a man. It could also mean that she was the final climax of the creation story. Paul's talking about the creation of, of humanity. And it could be understood that she is like the... The, the final product in creation. And some people have, go that way. For example, God started with light, then he continued with water and land and plants and, and animals and man, and well, he finishes with woman. He says, this is the best. You know, this, I, I've reached the pinnacle here. The, the creation process was an ascending scale and it reaches its peak in the creation of woman who was the glory of mankind and from whom all humankind comes. Paul then highlights the interdependence, not that woman again is better or more important, and he highlights interdependence of male and female with verse number 8 9 where he says, for a man did not come from woman, but woman from man. But then she said, uh, Paul says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, what's he talking about here? Apparently, some people in the church, just as they do today, were saying that a woman must be inferior because she was taken from Adam's side. Therefore, she must be less than. But Paul counters that. Notice what he says in verse 11 and 12. I know we're dealing with lots of verses, but notice this. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, get this now, so also man is born of a woman. 
But everything comes from God. So you see what Paul is saying. Yes, woman was originally taken from man's side, but every man that has ever lived ever since the time of Adam and Eve have come from woman. So you see there, he's going back and forth with this teaching. In other words, it's true that woman came from man, but it's also true that you, man, came from a woman. (laughs) Your mother came before you, and you were taken out of her body. The female originally came out of the body of a male, but every male since comes out of the body of a female. And the next verse have been used to shape the understanding of and the place of women in the Christian church in the scheme of things in a challenging way. Notice what it says. Verse number 9 and 10. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a hard verse. That's a hard verse. So the question is, from this verse, why do we have women? Well, some people say women are to serve men. That's what they say is proper, biblical. That's the place of a woman. That's the place of the woman in the family. That's the place of the woman in the church. That's the place of the woman in society. But is this really what what the verse is saying? Paul, again, is referring back to the Genesis story in Adam and Eve, where it says that the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So you know the picture. Adam was all alone. He had just finished naming all of the animals, And he noticed that the birds and animals, all of them were made in pairs, and he was alone. Verse number 20 in Genesis 2. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Adam was alone. He needed help. But there was nothing available. He needed a helper. And so that's what God did. He made a helper. Now, what is the helper that God made? That word in Hebrew is a powerful word. That very word, helper, is used in the Old Testament over and over again. And most of the time, it's used of God. God helping. You know some of those verses. You can say them. Behold, God is my helper. Psalm 54, verse 4. Or this one. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. God is our helper. So the helper doesn't refer to some subordinate, something of secondary importance. A helper is a powerful person, a powerful word. And it's oftentimes, as I mentioned, most often used of God who comes to help and to save someone in trouble. So women, according to Paul, were not created in order to serve as a household slave or as workplace assistance by creation before God, men and women were to be equally and mutually independent. But this verse number 10 still is challenging. Look at it again. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now what is this talking about, the angels? Again, I think Paul is looking back to the creation story um, from which man and woman were created. And uh, Adam is the one that God helped. 
and his helper was Eve, and now she, this woman has a, a proper place in the church, in worship, right beside men. Paul says the same sort of thing ought to happen for women prophets who lead the congregation in worship. A head covering, just as Queen Elizabeth, when she wears her crown, it's a symbol of her authority. So too Paul is saying when a woman wears a head covering, it's like a proclamation of her authority in proclaiming the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, Paul has mentioned that the angels were watching the activity of the apostles. This is what it says, verse 9, chapter 4. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Angels are watching. Angels were there at the creation of the world. The book of Job, chapter 38, verse number 7, says that angels sang praise to God at the creation of the world. Revelation says that that the angels join in all the inhabitants of heaven and unite in honoring Jesus Christ in song, the Lamb of God. So here, Paul says in worship, the angels are still on duty in Corinth, worshiping. The angels are here in this place with us, in this place of God's new creation, the church, the new temple. They're singing praises to God as we worship. I kind of like the way, just to summarize, how one commentator, uh, his name is Kenneth Bailey, puts these verses. And I'm just going to read it in total. I think it's helpful. So here's what he says. This is verses 2 to 16, just according to his understanding. And I think it's a good one. Here it goes. Let the men and women continue to pray and prophesy. Only ladies, please be reasonable. Cover your heads as you do so. Don't send the wrong signal to worshipers, male and female. Do not distract them with your beautiful hair. If you don't like my solution, I have an alternative. Cut it all off. Appearing bald will solve the problem. If you'd rather not go that route, however, then why not give my suggestion a try? Covering your heads when you lead in worship is not a put-down. Eve helped Adam in his weakness and need. Male and female need each other. Let the head covering be a sign for a female prophets of their authority to exercise their prophetic gifts in leadership along with male prophets. Do it because of the angels. The angels praise God at the first creation. Let them praise the wondrous fact of your restored status in new creation. And let the image of God in which you were created shine forth through your prophetic word. This way, you will preserve your right le- rightful leadership role and will not distract or upset the congregation in the process. He continues, You must know that a woman's hair exposed in public is seen as a come on in sections of the society in which you live. Sorry, that's a mistake. It should, instead of love, it should say live. I'm not asking you to cover your heads every time you leave home. My suggestion only applies when you're leading in worship and all eyes are on you. I'm asking for sensitivity to your your cultural setting. Love for harmony in the church must be a key and part of how you exercise your new freedom. That's what what Paul was saying there. Uh, So what's his message for us today? Again, I want to conclude with what Kenneth Bailey says. Men and women have gifts that they share together, and prophecy is among them. Those with these gifts should participate together in the leadership of worship. 
When doing so, don't dress in a manner that leads to misunderstanding or in any way detracts from the task of bringing the faithful into the presence of God. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Let the focus be on God, not on yourselves. In the Lord, you are equally and mutually interdependent. Let the angels rejoice once again. So I have to say, praise God. I'm so grateful that I'm part of a church that believes fundamentally in the equality of all humanity, irrespective of gender, race, ethnicity, age, education or said i'm grateful to be a part of a church like that i'm grateful to be a part of a church that has a fundamental belief in the unity and the body of christ that is established in the truth that we are a new creation in jesus christ and all divisions of race and culture and and learning and nationality all divisions that are oftentimes among us of high and low rich and poor male and female are not issues of divisiveness we are together in this body. We serve without partiality or without reservation, and we reach out to witness as one. And our unity in Christ has as its source God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have adopted us as children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us in Jesus Christ that, that removes all barriers, all status, all levels of importance. With you, before the cross, we are all equal. And you love us as your very own. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our midst and you would work in us this beautiful unity which you display so uh, gloriously in your trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so too we together, men and women, young and old, educated and not educated, um, different ethnic backgrounds, different levels of experience, all of us together worshiping you, not as people who are better or worse more important or not as important because of anything, but rather all of us grateful to you for your mercy and love and restoration, your saving act in Jesus Christ that brings us together as a family, a family united and standing before the world united for your glory and honor until you come back. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.